This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Shah Muhammad's scouting party had a simple mission. Travel to China, to the lands of the Jin dynasty, and report back any pertinent information. Could China be a trading partner? What riches did they possess? Could they be vulnerable to invasion? The party doubted the last possibility. The Jin dynasty was the greatest of the three Chinese empires, It spanned thousands of miles and had an immense population. Not to mention the most modern and sophisticated technology employed in warfare. But as the party approached the city of Chengdu, they were hesitant of its eerie quiet. The Mecca was supposed to house a million citizens, among them the greatest soldiers of the entire Jin dynasty. But when they approached, they did not find the bustling metropolis they expected. The walls were crumbled. Melted corpses lined roads slick with human fat. The buildings were burned and ash lined everything within eyesight. The only sign of the living was the carrion that feasted on the decaying bodies. It was a sight of total annihilation. The scouting party trembled in fear. Their Shah would not like this news. Something had done this. Something as yet unknown to the world. A force capable of destroying the greatest empires in the world. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're examining Genghis Khan's brutal dictatorship. 
We'll explore how espionage influenced his nation-building and military strategies. Finally, we'll unpack the transfer of power to his complicated heir and the unlikely ally that helped consolidate their empire. By 1206, Genghis Khan had united the disparate tribes of the Mongolian steppe. The feat was unprecedented. It was the first time the Mongols had ceded sole authority to a single Khan. The era of Pax Mongolica was set to begin. By the end of his reign, the Mongols would control virtually all of Asia and parts of Eastern Europe. During that time, Genghis would oversee a massive espionage operation, create the first international postal system, and encourage religious tolerance over his subjects. At his empire zenith, the conqueror reigned over one of the most ethnically and culturally diverse domains in the world. The question became, now that the Mongols were united, could their new Khan lead them out of centuries of conflict and into an era of progress? Genghis was concerned about the long-term needs of his growing tribe. The Mongols' harsh landscape yielded limited natural resources, and war with their more civilized neighbors seemed inevitable. If Genghis were to have a lasting impact, he would have to harness all the instruments of Mongol strength. He'd need to change his strategy, and he'd need to do it soon. By 1206, his rival and blood brother Jamuka was dead. The clans were united, and with this came the ability to form intelligence networks that would play a key role in the evolution of the Mongol Empire. Genghis oversaw an intricate and growing spy network where information regarding troop movements, supply caches, weather, and other critical intel was relayed by horseback rider. According to author and historian John Zambri, Genghis Khan's ability to mass forces, communicate over long distances, achieve intricate synchronization of operations, manipulate and exploit enemy weaknesses, and effectively employ psychological warfare tactics was unrivaled in the 13th century. It was a fascinating, uniquely Mongolian system in which a typical spy looked after three to four horses. When a horse was fatigued, the traveler would rotate it out giving the stallion freedom to run without the rider's weight. This system allowed riders to travel over 100 miles a day. For Genghis Khan, this would become integral when he ultimately faced off against civilizations with greater numbers and more advanced technology. The leader was brilliant at identifying and gaining advantage, and the knowledge he could cultivate with this network proved incredibly important in finding the enemy's weakness. It also proved useful in non-military matters. The spy route was repurposed into an elaborate postal service connecting the east to the west. By the 13th century, the Mongol Empire utilized a postal station that delivered continent-wide correspondence. These relay stations, or yams as they were known, were the heartbeat of the empire. The yams were used for the dissemination of official mail, for correspondence between foreign dignitaries and traveling officials, and for delivering tributes. As the Mongols acquired new lands and neighbors, merchants became important intelligence sources as well. They provided unique insight into the countries where they traded, especially when it came to dealing with the customs of foreign actors. 
This intelligence allowed Genghis to develop a multi-pronged approach to fighting battles, utilizing diplomatic and economic strategies rather than his previous scorched-earth policy. Even when he deployed units across large swaths of land, he could still communicate efficiently, allowing the army to coordinate in a way the enemy simply could not. This very much came in handy when Genghis Khan switched his focus from consolidating his power in Mongolia to conquering neighboring lands. It's unclear why Genghis Khan turned his attention outward. Historians give many reasons. Revenge, power, drought, more fertile lands, etc. But the most common one is the simplest, plunder. Genghis Khan wanted more wealth for his people, and the Chinese contingents to the north and east had it. First, he attacked the weaker Tangut Empire to the north in a land known as Sisia. He did so with what would become the trademark tactics of the Mongol Empire. Surprise them, sow chaos, and decimate their lifelines. So around 1207 CE, Genghis Khan led his army to the Gobi Desert. No sane person would expect an attack from such a place. The desert was nearly 1,000 miles across and had the most dramatic daily temperature shifts on Earth. It was a daunting task, especially when done with some tens of thousands of soldiers. However, one of the great strengths of the Mongol army was its incredibly efficient movement. Instead of traveling in columns like other armies of the period, the Mongols spread out wide horizontally. This allowed for the horses to openly graze and the soldiers to move more freely. It was also one of the primary reasons they needed an efficient messaging system. With an army so spread out, it was immensely important to get orders from one end to the other in a timely fashion. The Mongols were also incredibly adept at survival. They stored milk for meals, drank their horses' blood, and ate the meat of any animals that died of exhaustion. They sent out scouts that thoroughly mapped every resource they came across and wore clothes ideally made to protect them against the harsh weather. According to Marco Polo, any Mongol soldier could survive up to 10 days on the move, requiring an incredibly small amount of sustenance. Perhaps more importantly, the Mongols were incredibly disciplined. They followed orders precisely and rarely would even consider rebelling. This was due entirely to Genghis Khan's rigid and ruthless laws. Not only did he have a zero-strike policy, breaking the rules meant losing your head, but he had a zero-strike policy for everyone in a single army faction. That meant that if, in your group of ten fellow soldiers, one of them fled the battle early, all ten would be executed. This not only instilled fear, but accountability. And the Mongolians quickly learned to act upon their leaders' every demand. The Mongols' invasion of the Ottoman Empire took place between 1207 and 1209 and was not the cleanest of affairs. Nomadic tribes were woefully unprepared to storm the fortified city walls. Their bows and arrows had little effect against concrete slabs. And it didn't matter how efficiently they could move if every entry point was sealed. But something Genghis Khan was always willing to do was experiment. He began to learn about siege weapons from the locals, took prisoners to teach him the weaknesses of cities, 
and used his spies to instill discord amongst the local populations. He even tried to divert a river to flood a city, but accidentally ended up flooding his own military camp. Despite the hardships, the campaign was relatively successful, ultimately resulting in the Ottoman Empire becoming a sort of vassal state to the Mongols. But the Ottoman Empire was merely a warm-up round for the enemy the Mongols were about to face. By 1210, another Khan took notice of Genghis Khan's success. A ruler known as the Golden Khan of the Jin Dynasty had recently risen to power. The empire to the east considered the unification of the Mongol tribes a blessing. They thought they could make the barbaric nomads into a vassal state and use the ascension of the young Golden Khan as an excuse to send an emissary. But the ruler the messengers met with was not some ignorant fool to be bullied. He was a ruthless conqueror, a brilliant strategist, and most importantly, a wily opportunist. When the emissary made their proposal to Genghis Khan, he is said to have turned, spat on the ground, and then hurled nasty insults about the Jin dynasty and their pathetic Golden Khan. It was a clear declaration of war, and it gave Genghis Khan a chance to solidify the tribes once and for all. If he called them to march on the Jin dynasty and they answered with loyal dedication, he would know that the Mongols truly recognized him as Khan. Fortunately for him, the Jin dynasty and the Mongols already had a caustic relationship. The Golden Kings had meddled in Mongol affairs for decades. They had demanded taxes, dominated trade routes, and treated the tribes like barbarians, all while hiding behind their luxurious city walls. Rallying the troops against them wasn't difficult. After consulting with the eternal blue sky of the Tengarism religion for three days and nights, Genghis Khan gave word. The Mongols would attack the Jin dynasty and the great city of Chengdu was to be invaded. All of the difficulties they'd faced so far paled in comparison to the enemy on the other side of their journey. The Jin dynasty was composed of approximately 50 million people including a splattering of tribes on the Chinese border and many fortified cities. Genghis Khan, who knew the Mongols often faltered in the siege of these fortified cities, knew he would have to utilize creative tactics to have any chance at victory. So he began spreading propaganda, positioning the Mongol army as liberators against the tyrannical Golden Khan. With his people behind him, Genghis Khan could do what he did best. He had learned in his lifetime of war that it paid to be efficient. Any town, farm, or city that did not submit to Mongol rule was sacked with systematic brutality. The leader knew that even the smallest resource could mean a great deal to the survival of the Jin dynasty. By 1213, Genghis Khan had conquered nearly all of the Jin dynasty west of the Great Wall of China. Even still, when the Golden Khan heard that Genghis Khan and his forces were marching east, he offered the Khan a terse warning. Our empire is as vast as the sea. Yours is but a handful of sand. How can we fear you? His confidence, perhaps, lay in part to the fortification offered by the Great Wall of China. 
It wasn't exactly the wall we know today, but the ancient Chinese were always building fortifications on their northwestern border. After all, they were vulnerable to constant bombardment from the neighboring nomadic tribes. But Genghis Khan even had an answer for thousands of years of man-made defenses. He split his army into three factions, sending one envoy east, one south, with his own attacking the middle. This weakened the enemy's defenses and allowed the Mongols to break through the Great Barrier. And once Genghis Khan crossed the Great Wall, there was little left standing between him and the city of Chengdu. Coming up, Genghis Khan's blockade ends with the help of unlikely suicide bombers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Genghis Khan's invasion of the Jin Dynasty from 1211 to 1215 CE was a systematic and brutal dismantling of an empire. The Great Khan knew that his greatest ally against a formidable opponent like the Jin Dynasty was chaos. The Mongols would sack defenseless villages, burning crops, and sending peasants scattering into the countryside. The frantic people would disrupt trade routes and cause enough disturbance outside city walls that it left even the most fortified cities vulnerable. The army would lay all kinds of traps to lure soldiers out from the protection of the city and would strike at the most opportune times. Genghis Khan was different than other leaders and dictators of his time in that he considered every Mongol life to be precious. His tactics were rarely about sheer numbers and volume, and he used clever strategies to preserve as many lives as possible. The same, unfortunately, cannot be said of the Chinese peasants that were decimated by the Mongol army. By defeating these defenseless peoples, the Mongols not only obliterated a lifeline of the empire, they began garnering a reputation that they were invincible in battle. After all, Anyone who lived through one of these ruthless pillages would tell of nothing but miserable defeat at the hands of the nomadic army. But it wasn't just tiny, defenseless villages that Genghis Khan targeted. In their decimating invasion, the Mongols were said to have conquered nearly 90 cities, leaving a shocking death toll in their wake. But more important than the lives lost, were those gained. Citizens of the Jin Dynasty quickly learned that surrendering to the Mongols was a much more peaceful fate than the alternative. The Mongolian army thus swelled in rank, not only gaining manpower, but knowledge of Chinese siege weapons and the land they conquered. By 1214, the Mongolians had finally reached the great city of Chengdu, housing the Golden Khan and nearly a million other people. The Mongols had been incredibly successful to this point, but this was the army's biggest challenge to date. The city was a labyrinth of headaches for the Khan. 
Its walls and moats extended over nine miles around the capital, and it was defended by more than 900 towers. The fortifications were only half the problem. The Chinese defenders wielded substantial firepower. They had double and triple crossbow ballistas and trebuchet catapults that sent clay pots stuffed with incendiary explosives. But the most devastating of their arsenal was their gas weapons. According to author and historian Stephen M. Johnson, the Jin also introduced one of the first poison gas weapons in history, firing projectiles bound in wax and paper of 70 pounds of dried human waste, ground up poisonous herbs, roots, and beetles packed in gunpowder. The projectiles created a deadly cloud of toxic fumes that killed or disabled anyone who breathed the poisonous dust. But Genghis was undeterred. He used his newfound knowledge of siege weapons and swelled ranks to lay a stranglehold on the city. It did not take long for the Golden Khan to give in. His empire had been demolished by the forces that waited outside of his city walls. So in the spring of 1214, the Golden Khan and the Jin Dynasty surrendered and swore fealty to Genghis Khan. They paid tribute in the form of horses, gold, silver, and precious silk. The Golden Khan even gave his own daughter as a bride for the Mongol ruler. Genghis Khan retreated to his lands north of the Gobi Desert, having successfully dismantled the greatest empire in Asia. But the victory did not last for long. As soon as Genghis Khan had left the Jin lands, the Golden Khan decided to flee to the south. This angered Genghis Khan, who saw it as a betrayal of his peace terms. He returned to Chengdu with a vengeance. But this time, he had no designs on settling peacefully. Without the Golden Khan, the city was relatively defenseless. Genghis Khan broke through the walls and subjected the citizens to murder, rape, and plunder, leaving the one-time Mecca in total ruin. Genghis Khan returned to Inner Mongolia with literally more wealth than he knew what to do with. He doled out as much as possible to his generals and family, and even permitted building within his empire for the first time. But there were other things besides wealth that Genghis Khan collected that make his reign rather unique. During his ever-expanding conquest, the Khan was exposed to various religions, technologies, and unfamiliar customs that he either adopted or allowed within his kingdom under a caveat. The Khan understood that at the heart of many violent conflicts was religion. According to Jack Weatherford, author of Genghis Khan and the Quest for God, Genghis used a two-prong approach to avoid holy wars. He gave his subject the right to practice their faith, but that religion had to follow the laws of his land. Ostensibly, it meant there was no separation between church and state. Preferring a carrot to the stick, Genghis would entice religious leaders with exemptions from taxes and military duties. His empire became a melting pot of different faiths, Christians had lived among the Mongols for years and often intermarried. Taoists, Confucians, Buddhists, and Muslims were also among his subjects. 
Weatherford argues that while Genghis Khan seems to have respected some adherents individually, the religions themselves never seem to have made much of an impression on him. After all, the books and rites didn't seem to have afforded much protection when the Mongol armies came calling. At the end of the day, Genghis Khan would allow his subjects to practice their religion, as long as that didn't outweigh their reverence of the state. This is the primary idea that defenders of Genghis Khan will point to. The leader grew up in a mostly anarchistic society of tribal leadership. With his unification of the tribes and the lands to the east, the Khan was bringing law and order, a religiously free law and order, to the land. Never mind that it cost countless lives and left a trail of destruction never seen before in history. Never mind that the rule of law had a zero-strike policy. The end result is the important one. This discounting is a relatively backward way of thinking and the basis for all dictators' ideology. Because no matter how much he unified and how much he shared his wealth, he did so with a terrible and trembling fury murdering and raping countless women and children, sacking numerous defenseless villages. It was a twisted means to an end. But what exactly that end was is hard to determine. Genghis Khan certainly did not set out to conquer the world, but he was highly interested in advancing his empire forward. One way he wanted to do so was through trade. After conquering Asia all the way east to the Pacific Ocean, he turned his attention west to a kingdom called the Khorasmian Empire. After several peaceful and probing trade conversations between Genghis Khan and the empire's leader, Shah Muhammad, it seemed as though the two would succeed in setting up a trade route from Iran to the east coast of China. But when in 1218 the Khan sent an emissary with countless riches to the Shah, a governor on the eastern border of the Khorasmian Empire killed the emissary and kept the treasure for himself. In a strange act of defiance, the Shah refused to punish the governor and instead killed an envoy sent from Genghis Khan. Little did he know, the Shah had just ignited the fury of one of the greatest military leaders in history. And the practiced conqueror, now nearly 60 years old, would descend upon the Khorasmian Empire with his deft and ruthless precision. We'll cover Genghis Khan's last great campaign after this. Now back to the story. In 1219 CE, Genghis Khan gathered his army of about 200,000 soldiers and rode west with an incredible fury. Shah Muhammad had slighted the great Khan's attempts at forming a trade alliance, and he would pay a dear price. The Shah woefully underestimated the Mongol army when it came to battle strategy. He decided to spread his army out between cities, relying on the notion that nomadic tribes were relatively weak against fortified cities. What he hadn't expected was that the Mongols had cultivated and perfected the use of siege weapons when they took down the Jin dynasty. As the Mongols descended on the Khorasmian Empire, Genghis Khan split his army into four factions, divided between his four sons to attack the opposition on four different fronts. This only worked because of the incredible discipline of the Mongol army. 
disciplined instilled by the threat of instant death, not only if you disobeyed, but if anyone in your group disobeyed. It was a ruthless form of order, but an effective one. The Mongols took city after city in a systematic fashion, forcing Shah Muhammad into exile. The Shah's son took up the cause against the Mongols and proved to be a much more formidable leader than his father, but he could still not stand up to the wrath of Genghis Khan. Ultimately, the Mongol army conquered the entire Khorezmian Empire in the span of merely two years. After only 15 years of military campaigns against foreign powers, by 1222, Genghis Khan's empire spanned from the Caspian Sea to the Pacific Ocean. And he had done so despite being incredibly outnumbered and with much more primitive technology than his opposition. But his brilliant military strategy and willingness to accept and learn from other cultures created an entirely different type of war engine. One that was as efficient in its mobility as it was powerful in its strength. And fortunately for the Western world, after the destruction of the Khorezmian Empire, Genghis Khan felt it was time to pull back on his conquering ways. He returned to Mongolia around 1225. It would have been a peaceful end for the Khan, but like all rulers managing a vast empire, revolution was inevitable. More specifically, an uprising in Sisia called Genghis Khan's attention. The ruler could little ignore a call to battle, but this one, which he fought at nearly 60 years old, would prove to be fatal. A fall from his horse caused injuries that Genghis Khan would never recover from. He died as he most likely would have preferred to die, in a camp surrounded by his loyal soldiers facing up toward the eternal blue sky. After his death, loyalty to the great leader would be proven once again. It's said that 2,000 servants prepared Genghis Khan's body. Then a contingent of soldiers murdered those servants. Then, a smaller group of soldiers killed the soldiers that killed the servants, and so on and so forth, until a retinue of 800 men was left over. They traveled many miles to bury their leader, cutting down any man, woman, or child who had the unfortunate luck of seeing them. Once they buried Genghis Khan, they trampled his grave and planted trees atop it. After the burial, all 800 members of the funeral party killed themselves with ritualistic suicide. All of this done so that no one knew the Mongol leader's final resting place. To this day, the location of the tomb of Genghis Khan remains a mystery. Succession to the throne was ultimately given to Agadai, Genghis Khan's third son. What followed was a succession of Khans that continued to expand the already massive Mongol Empire. It would reach its peak with Genghis's grandson, Kublai Khan, who controlled an incredible 9 million square miles, about the size of North America, Canada, and Alaska included. But no matter the size and incredible strength of the Mongol Empire, it will forever be mired in blood and conquest. The Great Khan's trail of domination was an incredibly destructive force. Their penchant for murder and rape 
can be defined by one eye-popping fact. Around 16 million people alive today are directly descended from Genghis Khan himself. It is a shudderingly brutal picture of the Mongol campaign. A campaign that defined and shaped the history of the world in ways the Mongols could hardly imagine. After all, it seems from the outset that they were only pursuing basic things, wealth and the survival of their people. But that pursuit brought forth an army and a military strategist such as the world had never seen, nor would ever see again. Thanks for listening to Dictators. In next week's episode, we'll look at our last medieval conqueror, Vlad the Impaler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Dictators was written by Brandon Willer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>